we are looking at uh, Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel is one of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. If you're unfamiliar with these Gospel books, they were written by people who were there, who saw and recorded for us what they saw and heard. Mark's Gospel was the first of these to be written. The author is a man called Mark, who was a colleague of the Apostle Peter. Peter is Mark's main eyewitness source, and Peter was one of the close group of followers of Jesus called disciples. And after Jesus' death and resurrection and return to heaven, Peter became the leader of the early church. And Peter, as we'll see, figures prominently in the section of Mark's gospel we'll look at tonight. Mark, like the other gospel writers, devotes a big part of his narrative to describing the death and resurrection of Jesus. For they are the key events in Jesus' life on the earth. And if you're listening and new to Christianity, the stuff that matters most is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Why did he die? What happened when he died and what did his death achieve? How can we be sure he was raised from the dead? What's the significance of his resurrection? And these are the key questions we'll try and answer from Mark's account over the various Easter services. Tonight, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is the middle of the night. It is late on Thursday night through to the early hours of Friday morning. Later that Friday morning, Jesus would be condemned to death and crucified. Events are moving fast. So let's read from Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, and we'll read from verse 32 just down to verse 42. Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. And they, that's Jesus and the disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I, while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, 
and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is now at hand. It is the middle of the night, and Jesus and his disciples went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives, a familiar retreat for Jesus and his disciples. The word Gethsemane means olive press. The group had come from a house in the city where earlier that evening Jesus had celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. You can read that account earlier in chapter 14 of Mark. The Passover meal remembered how God's wrath, the angel of death, had passed over his people in history. What had saved God's people then was the blood of a sacrificed lamb smeared on their doorposts, a sign that they were God's people And so the angel of death passed over them. And in the intimate atmosphere of this Passover meal with his friends, his disciples, the night before his death, Jesus took bread and wine, symbols that traditionally recalled the events of that first Passover. He took the bread and wine, sharing it with his disciples, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had drunk from it and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, poured out for many. Jesus will give his life, his broken body, his bloodshed. Jesus is the Lamb of God, who will give his life as a sacrifice, so that God's wrath will pass over all people who look to him, who look to Jesus for their salvation. And that is the heart of the message of Easter. That is the heart of hope for humanity, that Jesus, God's Son, the eternal Son of God, was sacrificed, made a sinless man, sacrificed for human sin. And because Jesus died on the cross, God's wrath will pass over anyone who looks to Jesus for their salvation. Every human lives their life on earth under the sentence of death. Every human will live for eternity under God's wrath in hell. It is a terrible destiny. It is a terrible prospect. But for Jesus, had Jesus not died, heaven would be empty and hell would be everyone's destiny. But because Jesus died, heaven can be our eternity, saved from eternal hell. 
all we must do is look to Jesus. Look to him dying on his cross as the means of saving us from the eternal wrath of God. That is what Easter is all about. Now, why this account? Why this account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? What does Mark want to teach us about Jesus' death? What he wants to teach us about what we might describe as the agony that Jesus was going to experience. Agony, I think, is exactly the right word to describe what Jesus is experiencing. Mark records that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Such is the anguish and torment, the torture Jesus is experiencing in his soul, that it is close to killing him. Listen to this description from Luke's account. And being in an agony... Jesus prayed more earnestly, and the sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Hematidrosis is a condition in which capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, causing them to exude blood. It occurs under extraordinary conditions of extreme fear or physical or emotional stress. It can lead to death. Why is Jesus experiencing such agony, such torment in his soul? Because that night in the garden for the first time, Jesus saw and felt he saw and felt the enormity of what he was about to experience on the cross. In his prayers, he refers to the hour and the cup. Neither are literal, both are symbolic. The hour simply means all that is ahead of him, associated with his death. He is already in that hour, but the suffering will intensify and the cup stands for all he will endure, the physical torture, the mocking, the taunting, the desertion of his friends, but far, far, far more than any of these, the cup stands for the terrible burden of bearing the wrath of God and being forsaken by his Father. Through the Bible, the cup is a symbol of the wrath of God. Jesus would drink that cup. It is hard for us, but we must try to grasp the extent of the horror, the extent of the suffering. It is the totality of the eternal wrath of God 
for the millions and millions of people who believed in him and will believe in him through the centuries of history poured out on the Son of God in these few hours on the cross. It is no wonder that Jesus was sweating blood as he saw the full horror of the cup of wrath. The cup. And of course, there are two cups. The other cup, Jesus took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. We drink out of a cup that proclaims our forgiveness because he drunk the cup of God's wrath that we deserved. We take bread and wine to remember his saving death. He bore the wrath of God as he died for us. That's what he did for all who look to him for salvation. That's what he did for you. And for me. And so we sometimes sing these words Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. The enormity of what he would face brought him close to death that night. The anticipation of it brought him close to the end of his life. I wonder if we truly appreciate the shock Jesus must have experienced. After all, had he not seen all the effects of human sin in people's lives through his years of ministry? Had he not seen wickedness and evil and hate? Had he not seen more than anyone else because he could see inside the mind and heart of people? Had he not seen the terrible effects of a sin-stained world in sickness, distress, death, and suffering? He had, but he had never sinned himself. Jesus was fully God and he was fully man. He was fully human but sinless. And he was about to bear all the sinfulness of all humanity to look to him for salvation. He became sin, the sinless Jesus, perfectly holy and righteous in his human flesh, was to be made sin. He became sinful in his body. He had to become sin in order for the wrath of God to be extinguished. God's wrath must be quenched. And as the Lord Jesus contemplated in his holy, sinless humanity, himself in his humanity, being made sin, that was a tremendous shock to his human body, mind and soul, one that had never known sin. It was repulsive to his holiness, and it made him sweat blood. Now, there is one more dimension to Jesus' agony in the garden that night, and that is the devil's temptation. Many have described this as the last temptation of Jesus, the last throw of the devil's wicked dice. 
For the devil's number one objective from the start of Jesus' ministry was to stop Jesus going to the cross. Because it is only at the cross that the devil's power would be overcome. It is only at the cross that the devil's hold on every human heart would be overcome. If Jesus had not gone to the cross, there would be no heaven, only hell for eternity. And so the devil's number one objective was to stop Jesus going to the cross. How did he stop him or try to stop him going to the cross? By tempting him. By tempting him to believe he did not need to go to the cross. Now Mark in his gospel records three occasions when the devil tempted Jesus not to go to the cross. The first temptation, Mark 1, 12 to 13, the very instant Jesus began his ministry. Let me read from Mark 1. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, we know from the other gospel accounts of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness that the devil offered Jesus everything he deserved by right, yet without the cross. You can have it all, Jesus. Dominion and power without needing to go to the cross. That's the first time the devil tempted Jesus not to go to the cross. The second is in Mark 8, 31 to 33. Let me read that. He began, Jesus, to teach the disciples that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said that plainly, it is unequivocal what he meant. Everyone could understand the first clear statement from Jesus that he must go to the cross. And what happened? Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Peter is saying to Jesus, no, you will not go to the cross, Jesus. And Jesus' reaction, Mark 8 and 33, turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It is God's will that Jesus go to the cross. It is the devil in the heart of man that opposes the will of God and says, Jesus, you do not need to go to the cross. That is the devil. It is evil speaking, tempting Jesus. And Jesus' response is emphatic, get behind me, Satan. And the third temptation, the final temptation here in Gethsemane. How do we know the devil is tempting Jesus in the garden? Because Jesus is in a battle, a spiritual battle about whether he can go through with this. In Luke's account, when Jesus was arrested in the garden, these words of Jesus are recorded when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. In the middle of the night, Jesus faced the power of darkness, the devil, 
tempting Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus' agony as he contemplated the enormity of what he was facing, as he experienced the shock of the assault of sin on a sinless body, as he faced his final temptation, his final battle with the devil, this Son of God, who had stood on a board in a storm and commanded the sea to be still, the Son of God who had rendered a demon-possessed man sane, the Son of God who had taken a dead child's hand and raised her to life, the Son of God who had fed thousands out of nothing, the Son of God who had faced his opponents with steel and steadiness, the Son of God who had spoken three times plainly and emphatically about the necessity of his death and resurrection, the magnificent, eternal Son of God, undone, distraught, sweating blood, because he is so distressed, so troubled, sorrowful, and in agony. What does he do in his agony? He prays to his father. He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Three times he prayed to his father, not, I think, three short prayers, but three intense periods of praying only interrupted by his going to see Peter, James, and John. It is intimate. Abba, Father, my dear Father, my loving Father, is there any way that I can be spared from this? Is there any way that people's salvation can be secured other than this way? Please spare me from your terrible wrath. Yet not what I will, but what you will. God the Father heard Jesus' prayer. The writer of Hebrews says this in the days of his flesh. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus was heard. And God's answer was that there could be no other way. Jesus would not be spared from what lay ahead. And in Luke's account, we read that God sent an angel to strengthen Jesus, as he had done when Jesus was first tempted by the devil. One of the astonishing things in this account is that three times during this intense time of prayer, this intense spiritual battle, Jesus stopped praying 
and went back to his three disciples that he had taken with him into the garden, Peter, James, and John. He had asked them to come with him to comfort him, that he might know that they were praying. He took with them to show them that he needed to die for them. But let's not fail to note that three times, in the most intense spiritual battle that Jesus had ever faced, when his soul was in torment, he stopped praying and went to check on his disciples. Such is his love for them, even at this hour. Jesus has gone through the biggest battle of his life. What he would experience on the cross in a few hours would be a greater agony. But here in Gethsemane, the last battle that would stop Jesus going to the cross was won. Here in Gethsemane, the last battle that meant heaven would not be empty of humanity was won. Here in Gethsemane, the last battle that meant hell need not be the destiny of all humanity was won. The final onslaught from the devil to prevent Jesus going to the cross did not succeed. And Mark's text ends with Jesus steadfast, strong, focused again. The magnificent Son of Man, once again, in all of his divine composure, saying, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, were these accounts of Jesus in Gethsemane in the middle of that night into the early hours of the first Good Friday, were these accounts not in our Bibles? we would not understand nor be able to respond appropriately or emotionally or with our affection stirred to the enormity of Jesus' death and its horror. And thus the love of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who did all this for our salvation. We need to understand what a terrible thing it is for an unforgiven sinner to endure the wrath of God for eternity in hell. In order to understand what Jesus did to save us from that, that he bore in his body on the cross an eternity of wrath for the millions of people in all of human history who have looked to him for salvation, and everyone who will still look to him for salvation. He died for people who are as yet heedless of him, people who tonight revile him, but one day will turn to him. He died for you. And maybe you have never paid him attention till now. Maybe the circumstances in our world have caused you to think on him. 
Well, he died all these years ago for you to believe in him tonight. He died to make your heart of stone, a heart of flesh. As we sang, for me it was in the garden, he prayed not my will but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden of Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. That song is chock full of personal pronouns. My song, is it your song? Can you sing it with conviction from your heart? Well, you can sing it with conviction. You can sing it in person if you look to Jesus for your salvation. Now, let me just say a little bit as we come to the end, about Jesus' disciples that he took with him into the garden, Peter, James, and John. These three would be the key leaders in the early church. They were genuine leaders. God would use them in significant ways. But like everyone, they needed to come to terms with their need of forgiveness, that Jesus needed to die for them, all of them, Peter in particular, had said they would never desert Jesus. Jesus had told them they would, but they didn't believe him. And to all the disciples, he said, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and they saw him in his distress and his anguish and in the torture of his soul. And he said to them, stay here and keep watch. Keep watch over Jesus, over their own souls. Three times he returned to him in his anguish, and he found them asleep. Jesus won the battle. They failed their battle. He triumphed and they failed. Three times he found them sleeping. Three times. Three times. In a few hours in the cold light of dawn at Jesus' trial, Peter denied the Lord three times. Here's a verse from later in Mark's account, right at the end of chapter 14. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, You will deny me three times. And he broke down, and he wept bitterly. Three times Jesus found Peter and the others not watching and praying, but sleeping. Three times Peter denied he knew Jesus. And that made Peter break down and weep, and realized how much he needed the forgiveness Jesus brings through his death. 
and that moment of recognition, that moment of repentance, when Peter turned in his heart from preventing Jesus from going to the cross to knowing Jesus needed to go to the cross for him, that was the decisive moment in Peter's life. The great apostle Peter, the leader of the church, needed to be broken and to weep before Jesus. And that is the place we all need to reach. That is the point or the process or the experience of forgiveness. When conscious of our sinfulness, we look to Jesus for forgiveness and salvation. No one is exempt from the need of Jesus' death for their salvation. If you have never sung the song, if you have never sung the song, how marvelous, how wonderful, my song shall ever be. It's because you have not experienced that brokenness in your heart. It is that brokenness, that humility, that repentance, that being undone by our sin. And looking to Jesus dying on the cross for us, that a human life is turned around. They had to see they were failures, and so do we. But what of their future, and our future when we turn to Jesus for salvation? Well, there is forgiveness, full and complete. Just after his resurrection, Jesus would take Peter aside and ask him three more questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And the spirit of the risen Jesus comes into our lives and we no longer need fall asleep when he calls us to stand with him. We are ready to take up our cross and follow him in sacrificial service for the sake of the gospel on the earth. He says to us, keep watch, and we will. We will be vigilant, ready, willing, zealous to give our all for Jesus. Because we have understood and experienced in our emotions in our minds and in our affections, the impact of the cross of Jesus for us. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us understand a passage of Scripture that shows us very clearly and very powerfully all that your Son, the Lord Jesus, experienced when he died. We pray that like Peter and the others, we would all be found 
and perhaps those of us who are Christians return there in our mind's eye to that place of humility and contrition and brokenness and crying before Jesus. It causes us to look to the cross where he died for me. It causes us to rejoice that we are fully forgiven through his death. And it causes us to be made alive by the Spirit of the risen Christ. So that when he says to us, be watchful, take up your cross, serve with me on the earth, we are ready and willing and zealous to give our all for Jesus because we have truly understood and truly experienced his cross, his death in our lives. Cement these truths now, Lord God, as we sing together. For Jesus' sake. Amen.